Well, good evening, Hallows Church. My name is Andrew, and I serve as a pastor here. Let me invite you to grab your Bibles, turn them open to Philippians chapter 4 as we continue our study of the book of Philippians under the theme, Indestructible Joy. Philippians chapter 4. If you do not have a Bible, know there's one provided in front of you to use. If you do not own a Bible, know that there's some on the table in the foyer. Feel free to grab one of those on your way out. Let it be our gift to you. And as you're finding your way to Philippians chapter 4, let me voice a prayer for us, and then we will dive in. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace? to receive that which you would have for us in your scriptures in this moment. I pray that our hearts would be receptive and responsive to what you want to do in us and through us and all around us. For the glory of your name in the city of Seattle and beyond, God, we ask this. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, many years ago, the Peace Corps designed a survival manual for those who were serving them in various places around the world, and each survival manual was customized according to context and place where it would, uh, where their service would be executed. And the most unique one I discovered was the one written for those in the Amazon, and because in the Amazon, if you read through the survival manual there, you'll you'll discover some some survival techniques and learn some survival skills that you may never think you would ever need. I don't know if it was tongue-in-cheek inserted into this manual, but there was actually a description of how to survive an anaconda attack. And so I thought it would be helpful for us living in Seattle, Washington, to learn how to survive one of those, just in case over the course of your days you come across a snake that can grow up to about 35 feet long, one that is capable of swallowing an animal up to about 350 pounds. Like, just in case you come across that, here's what you need to do. Number one, don't run. And I would add the qualifier, don't run unless you are faster than the people that you are with. If that is the case, run, get out of there. If if you're not, don't run, be still. And then we're told to lie flat on the ground and keep arms close to your side and your legs together. And then we're told to tuck our chin in, that the snake will come and begin to nudge you and climb over your body. Number five, we're told do not panic. Yeah, right. Number six, after the snake has begun to examine you, it will begin to swallow you from the feet first. It always swallows from the feet first. That's good to know. Permit the snake to swallow your feet and ankles. Here it is again. Do not panic. The snake will then begin to suck your legs into its body. You must lie perfectly still. This will take a long time. When the snake has reached your knees, slowly and with as little movement as possible, reach down, take your knife, and very gently insert it into the snake's mouth, between its mouth and your leg, then suddenly rip upward and sever its head. But then the pointer number nine is be sure that you have a knife, right? (laughs) If you don't have a knife, that's not going to do you much good. Now, I share that with you this evening really for no spiritual reason whatsoever. (laughs) Except that in that manual, there's that repeated refrain. If you're ever in that type of predicament and you're tempted to panic, the the repeated refrain, do not panic. And that's essentially what I want to encourage you to do this evening as we step into tonight's passage, because some of you will be tempted to panic, because tonight we're going to talk about the issue of money. And anytime the issue of money comes up in the life of the church, we are tempted to panic, we are tempted to freak out, we are tempted to get cynical and suspicious. And I just want to encourage you, do not panic. We're going to get through this. And I also want to let you know that we're locking the doors in the back so nobody can leave, so you don't have a choice but to stick around and deal with this dynamic with us. But this is a passage dealing with money, and I do want to encourage you not to panic because this is a very significant issue 
as it rests in relationship with the human heart. There's many reasons why guys like me and churches like ours and churches all over the place sometimes hesitate to talk about money. I understand that we live in a cynical world and anytime a guy like me stands up and begins to preach and to teach the Bible on matters related to money, that cynicism can swell up and you can call my motivations into question and you can draw the conclusion, well, he's a pastor supported by the church. Of course, he wants us to give money to the church. That's, his, that's part of his livelihood. You can get real cynical in this moment. And because of that, guys like me sometimes shy away and are a little hesitant to deal with this type of issue. But then another reason, not so much because we live in a cynical world, there's another dynamic that may hit closer to homes with some of us, and that's the reality that we live in a materialistic culture. And in a materialistic culture, money occupies a prominent place in our lives and in this society. And as a result, our hearts are deeply attached to our stuff. And if a guy like me stands up and starts prodding around with your, with your finances and your money and your material possessions that might hit so close to home that it makes you uncomfortable and it might cause you to freak out and, and it can be a tough issue for some of us. But then another reason why some guys like me may be hesitant to talk about money is I realize we live in a very spiritually confused culture in a very spiritually confused situation as it relates to the church and money. Now, a lot of that confusion and a lot of that problem is self-inflicted because church leaders and churches have not always handled the topic and the theme and the teaching on money very well. They haven't handled money very faithfully. They haven't always stewarded resources well. And as a result, some of you uh, may be scarred as a result of ways you've seen money used and abused in churches. And, and so I know there's a lot of spiritual confusion out there. Also know that some of you perhaps have watched TV and you've listened to guys stand up and talk about and associate divine favor and blessing with material wealth almost exclusively. And they may tell you that you know you're favored by God and you know you're loved by God if you have a lot of stuff, if you have a lot of money. That's a sign of God's favor. That's a sign of God's blessing almost entirely. But then you may jump off of some of those uh, religious stations and you may jump into CNN and you may see some guys uh, stepping on to an interview and they kind of go in the equal and opposite extreme saying, well, it's not so much God's favor is for the prosperous and those who are materially wealthy. God's favor and his blessing really rests with the impoverished. That God favors the poor. He favors those who are downtrodden. And so you want to push this pendulum that way and, and kind of get into a poverty theology and your understanding of Christianity and and as a result, we just live in a spiritually confused climate as it relates to money and its role in the church, money and its role in your life. But with all of that said, I do want to say as a pastor of this particular body and of this church, that if I hesitate to talk about money, if I avoid this type of issue for any of those reasons, I will be doing you a disservice. I will not be loving you well. In order to love you well, we have to deal with matters related to money and the church and our heart's posture to it. So if I avoid it, if I neglect it, if I downplay the, all that the scriptures have to say about this particular issue, I will not be loving or serving you well. Now, I know that there are some who believe that money is morally neutral, and to that I would agree. Morally, money is morally neutral, but I would also say that the human heart isn't. And since the human heart is not morally neutral, money can be used and abused in ways that God never intended it to be used and abused. In fact, because the human heart is not morally neutral, 
our heart can and often does have an unhealthy and a harmful relationship with money and wealth. We do with money a lot of times what A.W. Tozer would describe in that quote you read earlier is he's just kind of describing the fallen human condition and how we've taken things and replaced God's place with things. And you might put, instead of things, you might insert money in the quote that you read earlier where we see that our woes began when God was forced out of his central shrine and money were allowed to enter. Within the human heart, money has taken over. People have now, by nature, no peace within their hearts, for God is crowned there no longer. But there in the moral dusk, stubborn and aggressive usurpers fight among themselves for first place on the throne. And one of the most aggressive and stubborn threats to God's place in your life is money. It is material wealth. And so we don't want to have an unhealthy or an unholy relationship with something that is morally neutral. We want to do the hard work of heart work as it relates to money. You see, there are some who would look at money and see it as a source of salvation, that a person's checkbook and bank account speaks to their value, it speaks to their dignity, it speaks to their wealth. And, and so we talk about what we have as a relationship to our dignity and value, and it then becomes a source of salvation. But I would posit this evening, in light of all that the Scriptures have to say about money in relation to the heart, is that far from being a source of salvation, money can actually be a threat to your salvation. This is the story of the rich young ruler, isn't it? The young man who acquired great wealth at a young age had acquired a lot, was very successful, had a good reputation, but there was still something unsettled in his heart so that when he learned Jesus was near, he ran to him and said, Jesus, he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit, inherit eternal life? And Jesus looked at him and says, knowing that his heart was clinging to his wealth, he said, I want you to go and sell all that you have, give it to the poor and then come follow me. But you know how the story ends. The young man turns away sad. He was unwilling to part with his possessions for the sake of the Savior. And as a result, he left sad. His money, his wealth, his status, the value he drew from that was a threat to his salvation. This is why Paul would say something very similar in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is... Through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So we don't want to say that money is a source of salvation. No, we want to recognize soberly and humbly that money can be a threat to a person's salvation. But then at the same time, we want to recognize that money, far from being a source of salvation, there are others who might say and they might equate uh, the possession of money as a sure sign of divine favor, of divine blessing. But far from being a sure sign of divine favor and blessing, I want you to understand that how our hearts relate to money can actually threaten our spiritual vitality. It can threaten our spiritual health. I mean, why else do you think money is such a source of fear and worry and anxiety for so many people? Fear and worry and anxiety surrounds the issue of money when we do not have a healthy relationship with it. You see, if you and I do not learn how to handle our money, our money will ultimately handle us. And when money handles us, I want you to know that it will handle you like a merciless master. It will show you no grace. It will show you no mercy. If money handles you, it will always demand more of you. 
And you will find yourself making more sacrifices to it. Sacrifices of your time, sacrifices of your energy, sacrifices of your relationships, sacrifices of your family. If you do not learn how to handle money, money will handle you like a merciless master. And it is for these reasons that I have to deal with this issue in this passage. It is for these reasons that a passage like Philippians chapter 4 becomes grace to us. It's a graceful passage for us. It is a gift. It is a passage that speaks to this issue so that we can view money and resources and how we use them in the service of Jesus and his kingdom and his purposes in the world. This is why Jesus would say in Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve both God and money. You just can't do it. One's going to rule, one's going to dominate. And I hope and I pray that you would become the type of disciple and we would become the type of church who is ruled and dominated by our God, Jesus, not our money and our stuff. So Philippians chapter 4, beginning of verse 15, check out what we read here. Paul writes, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, this passage is a gift to us. It is grace for us because in this passage, we find a profile of a generous church. We find a profile of a generous church that does not serve money, but has found a way for money to serve the church. Essentially, that's what a generous person and a generous church is. It's a person or a community that, isn't, that doesn't serve money, but is actually served by money for, for God-honoring and gospel-advancing Purposes. And so I want to identify this profile of a generous church referring to the church at Philippi. But just to remind you, Paul is writing this letter from a prison cell after having received some resources from a generous church. The church at Philippi have sent their pal Epaphroditus on a long journey to bring money and supplies to him in prison to care for him. And one of the reasons why we have the letter to the Philippians is Paul wrote this letter in many ways to express his gratitude to that church for their generosity. And so Epaphroditus, likely when he returned back to the church at Philippi, he brought this letter with him and shared it with the church to encourage them in their generosity. But what was it that made that church generous? What was it that made that church care for the Apostle Paul and his situation in his prison cell? Well, one, I believe that you see that it's a church, that a generous church is one that treasures the gospel. What compelled generosity out of the church at Philippi was the fact that they together treasured the gospel. This is why Paul begins in verses 15 and 16 to talk about tracing the track record of his interaction with the Philippians and how they have supported him and used their resources in partnership with the gospel. Notice what he says in verse 15. He assures them and reminds them of the fact that they that they themselves knew that in the beginning of the gospel, when he left Macedonia, that was the region where Philippi was located, no church entered into partnership with him except them only. That they entered into partnership with the Apostle Paul. 
And it's a powerful picture when you consider, perhaps you're reading from an NIV translation. If you are, uh, it makes verse 15 a little bit more clear, where the ESV says that in the beginning of the gospel, the NIV reads, in the early days of, get this, your acquaintance with the gospel. He's saying, when you guys heard the gospel, it did something to you. When you guys heard the story of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection, the free forgiveness of your sins and the full manifestation of God's grace in Jesus, that ignited generosity within you. You began to treasure that story immediately. They immediately entered into partnership with Paul that involved the leveraging of their financial resources. You see, a generous church is one that treasures the gospel. And when you understand, when your heart begins to treasure the gospel, it is almost instinctive for your heart to begin to become generous. For a desire to show forth generosity just kind of bursts out of us almost instinctively when we begin to treasure the gospel. This was Zacchaeus' story. You remember Zacchaeus, the wee little man? A wee little man was he? He climbed a sycamore tree because he heard Jesus was coming by and Jesus knew he was there and went to look for him and he called him by name. He said, Zacchaeus, I must come to your house today. Zacchaeus scurried on down the tree. He said, yes, Jesus, whatever you want. He brought him into his house. They sat down, had a meal together, threw a little party. And at the end, after he experienced God's grace towards him in Jesus, in the Messiah, he took half of his possessions and he sold them and he gave all his money to half of that He sold half of his possessions and gave that money to the poor. Instinctive and immediate response to God's grace towards him was to become generous. That was the church at Philippi's experience. That is the experience that I pray that all of our hearts would have as we begin to treasure the gospel. Generosity would become instinctive. I I was humbled by a picture of this last week. I was actually preaching and teaching at one of our partner churches in Lake Jackson, Texas, just outside of Houston, a place called Brazos Point Fellowship. And I was able to, I was given an opportunity to stand and to share with the church what Jesus had been doing in our church and some of the needs that we have. And it was a real small, short interview. And then later, I was able to give the sermon, give the message. But uh, I didn't talk about giving. I didn't talk about money. I just talked about the gospel and as soon as it was over, I walked down and I was standing up front. And as soon as the service ended, this seventh grader walks up to me with tears in his eyes and he reaches in his pocket and he pulls out a wad of cash. It wasn't folded. It wasn't sorted. Just a big chunk of cash just in his paw. And he, and he, said, and he just said through tear, tearful eyes, I want you to have this. I, I want this to help you guys in Seattle. And I received it humbly. And I learned later that this kid had become a Christian not too long before that moment, but what was happening in that moment was his heart was treasuring the gospel. And since the gospel moved in and he began to treasure the story of Jesus and the purpose of Jesus in the world, that caused him, a seventh grader, to let go of his earthly treasures. He could have used that money on a video game. He could have used that money on a new pair of tennis shoes. He could have done whatever he wanted with those funds, but he chose in that moment to give them towards the advancement of the gospel. His heart treasuring the gospel and that gospel producing generosity instinctively and immediately. Very early on in our discipleship, when we believe the gospel, generosity should swell up within us. If generosity isn't swelling up within us, we may not be understanding the free grace of God and the sufficiency of Jesus. We may not be thinking about the gospel very well. 
But the Philippians were. This is why they were a generous church. They were treasuring the gospel so much so that when you look at verse, if you drop up to verse 10, you'll notice that they were giving to Paul and they were partnering with him financially, not out of obligation. They were, they were partnering with him because they saw an opportunity to be about what Jesus is about in the world. Check it out, verse 10. He tells them, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no what? Opportunity. He knew they loved him. He knew they cared for him. He knew they wanted to be about what Jesus was about. They just needed the opportunity. And when that opportunity came and Epaphroditus volunteered to carry these resources, they said go. And they sent him to Paul in his prison cell looking for opportunities as a result of their ministry partnership with Paul. Now, yesterday we went through what was called meaningful membership, and I was able to share with people what it means to actually join the Hallows Church faith family and to be a ministry partner with us, and how it means that when you join this church, you have a role to play in what we're doing in the name of Jesus in this city, that you are a ministry partner. Now, that partnership is all-encompassing. It involves a lot, not least of which is how we use our resources not least, of the which of, not least of which is you and I being willing to give of our resources towards the advancement of the gospel in support of the local church. This is why in our membership covenant we would make this statement. We will give cheerfully and generously to the support of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. We, we live in that rhythm as ministry partners together. We understand that as we're treasuring the gospel... We become a generous people who are now giving to the church, not out of obligation, but because we have the opportunity to do so. We have the opportunity to be about what Jesus is about in this world. And yes, that involves the resources he supplies to his church through his people. And so a generous church is one that treasures the gospel. But then when you move on, I love verse 17 because Paul gets even more. He throws a qualifier out there that I think is very important. He says, not only is a generous church one that treasures the gospel, he says a generous church is one that's transformed by the gospel. Look at verse 17. He doesn't want to be misunderstood. He understands perhaps cynicism existed even in the first century as related to guys like Paul and the request for resources and money and help and those types of things. And so he assures them, it's not that I'm, it's not that I'm seeking the gift. The point of our partnership isn't so much the money. The point of our partnership is what the money says about your heart. He said, it's not that I'm seeking the gift, it's, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. He's saying the money you are supplying represents the evidence of God's gospel at work in your life. The gospel is releasing your clutches from your stuff so that you're becoming more generous to support the work of the gospel in the world. You see, when you take that into consideration and you consider what Paul is saying in verse 17, saying it's not that I'm looking for money and gifts, it's, it's that I'm looking for the fruit. I'm looking for evidences of grace. I want to know that your heart is being set free from the love of money so that you would love it so much that you cling to it, knowing that when you cling to it, that ultimately, or that can and does lead to death. For you cannot serve both God and money. And so Paul says, I'm not really looking for the money. That's not really the point. The point is where your heart at is, where your heart is at this moment. You see, what moves me most at Brazil's point last week wasn't so much the amount of money that this seventh grader put in my hands. It wasn't much. I mean, it was a lot for a seventh grader, 60 bucks. What does that really do for our church? What does that really do for our, for our efforts and our needs? Well, you know, 
doesn't do a whole lot. But it speaks volumes of where that kid's heart was. And it was a humbling moment to see his heart responding to the work of grace within him, being transformed by the gospel so that he would be willing to give of this money that I, I don't know how he acquired. But what was cool is not even long, not much long after that, a 10th grader came up to me, another wad of cash, reached it out, dropped it in my hand. Like, what do I do with all this cash? I'm just kind of putting cash in my pocket. Felt like a prosperity preacher, and that's not really my style. But I'm getting all this cash just in my pockets. And... But again, it's not so much the amount. It's probably $70 at that point. Not so much the amount of money. The point wasn't the money. The point was the evidence of grace that was showing up in these kids' lives. And then not long after that, a, a gentleman a little bit older walked up to me. And by the looks of things, if I can risk judging by appearances, he didn't seem to be a very resourceful person. And he even said as much where he says, you know, I don't have a lot. But what I do have, I want, you, I want to give you. Opened up his wallet and gave me every piece of cash he had therein. It was around $100, $110, something like that. I just wanted you to take this. I want this to be a blessing to what you guys are doing in Seattle. And again, the point isn't the money, not the amounts. These weren't large amounts. But they were evidences of God's grace in these people's lives. And, and I received it with gratitude. I received it in humility. And I brought it back here. And I deposited it in the church's account so that they might serve the purposes for which they gave it in the first place. Evidence of God's grace transforming the hearts of these worshipers. This is what Paul is getting excited about. It's not that I'm seeking the gift. I'm seeking the fruit that increases to your credit. It's, it's the transformation that the gospel is producing in you. Evidence that the gospel is liberating people from the clutches of materialism, from the clutches of greed, from the faithless harboring of resources. That's what Paul was going after. And anytime we talk about money in this church, that's what we're going after. You see, when you study the scriptures and you explore this theme of money and generosity, what you will discover is that generosity isn't simply something that God wants from us. Generosity is what God wants for us. It is for our good to become a generous people, to not be enslaved to our wealth, whether we have a little or a lot. God doesn't simply want generosity for, from us. He wants it for us. That's how we need to view money and generosity in this moment. It's good for the soul when the gospel begins to work that transforming effect. Now, when you keep reading in verse 18, Paul then begins to talk about their giving and their generosity in some of the most lofty language available to him. Listen to how he describes their generosity. He uses these words at the end of verse 18. He says, you know those gifts that you sent... And then he describes them. They were a fragrant offering. They were a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. He takes language from the Old Testament used to describe the sacrifices and the offerings that they would make there in their worship. And he transfers that language and attaches it to the Philippi's, the Philippians' generosity. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, when you give, you are worshiping. Generosity is worship. If, you were to, if somebody walked up to you today and said, what are you doing tonight? And you looked at them and said, well, I'm going to worship. What do you think they would think of? Most likely they would think about a guitar or a piano. Most likely they would think about music and singing. Most likely they would, those were the images that were popping into, into minds. But do you know what Paul would think of when he talked about the worship of the church? 
And this isn't the only time he does it here. He does it multiple times in the New Testament. When Paul talks about the worship of God's people, he oftentimes attaches it to generosity. This is why we try to be very careful with our terminology in this church. Terminology easily becomes theology. So if we talk wrongly, we will develop wrong theology. So there's a disservice in the church today where sometimes we have this distinction between worship and preaching, worship and everything else. Worship is attached to music. Preaching, well, that's something else. Uh, Giving, that's something else. But understand, all of it is an expression of our worship. That's why we say we worship through singing. We worship through praying. We worship through preaching. We worship through giving. Giving is a form of worship. So Paul's making that very clear in verse 18, saying what you guys gave, man, that was, a, that was incredibly pleasing to God. It was worship. Now, when it comes to this matter of giving in the church, I know that questions begin to raise in our minds because some of, some of you have grown up in churches and you've been exposed to certain kinds of giving, giving cultures in churches. And I know in the tradition I was raised up in, there was one word that was always used in reference to giving, and it was the word tithe. How many of you have heard of the word tithe before? You've heard of tithes and offerings and that being what giving looks like in the local church. Now, that language, tithe and offering, comes out of the Old Testament. And it's important language to to discover what that means and to see why people worship through giving tithes and offerings and what those were in the Old Testament. But the question inevitably comes when we begin to think about giving today as, as people under grace or giving today as people in Christ. And we ask questions like, well, is tithing necessary today in light of the new covenant or in light of the New Testament or in the, on this side of the resurrection of Jesus? And so I just want to kind of give you a brief survey of of what tithing was then and how we should think about that concept today. I mean, if we're going to talk about money, we kind of got to do that that type of thing. So let's think first about tithing under the Old Covenant, tithing in the Old Testament. Now, the word tithe literally means 10%. That's why in some Christian traditions, they would say, well, I'm tithing. That means to take 10% of what you make and give it to the church. That's practicing the tithe. And tithe certainly meant 10%. But here's the challenge. In the Old Testament, Israel wasn't instructed or commanded under the law to give one tithe. They were actually commanded to give three tithes. They gave two tithes on an annual basis. That's 20% of their annual income they would give to the purpose of Israel. And that would consist of three things. It would support leadership in Israel. It would go to help out with the communal celebrations in Israel. And it would go to the relief of the poor and the needy in their nation and even those who would kind of wander into their nation. And then a third tithe was taken up every three years. And what that means is, if you kind of divvy that out on an annual basis, that means the people of Israel, when they practice the tithe, which we would say, okay, that means to give 10%, In the Old Covenant, it actually meant that worshipers were giving around 23% of their annual income to those purposes. That's a big chunk. But even then, that wasn't all that they did because there were also a couple of other ways in which they exercised generosity. They gave free will offerings and first fruit offerings. So you take the 23% and you layer these other offerings that would be collected over the course of the year and your percentage is ratcheting up. 
So the people of Israel, under the law in the Old Testament, were very generous. You might say, well, they were obligated. They were compelled by law. Whatever. They gave it. And then when you move to the New Testament, you get into the New Testament, what happens? You wonder, well, does that same type of economy, does that transfer into the life of the church today? And, and I'll be honest with you, giving under the New Covenant, when you read through the New Testament, you will not see a single, a single command found therein to tithe. We as followers of Jesus, on this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus, are not commanded to tithe in any explicit way in the New Testament. Now, there, are, there is a moment on two occasions in Luke chapter 11, verse 42, and Matthew 23, verse 22. On two occasions, Jesus talks about the tithe. And when he talks about the tithe, he assumes its practice. He kind of endorses it implicitly. He says, you guys give tithes and that's good. You should be doing that. And then he goes on to talk about qualifying their tithe with some pure motivations and love for God and those types of things. And so Jesus kind of endorses the tithe, but he doesn't explicitly come out, and Paul doesn't carry this over in the epistles, the explicit practice that we should be tithing or giving of 10% or thinking in those categories when we worship through giving today. But what you do find when you study how the church gave in the New Testament is that they gave really for three reasons. They gave to what? They gave to support leaders, just like Israel. They gave to contribute to communal celebrations, just like Israel. And they gave to bring relief to the poor and the needy in their midst and in their context and their city. So we still give for the same reasons. The question is, how much are we expected to give? So what the Old Testament explains under the Old Covenant and what Jesus kind of endorses subtly in the Gospels, we do find a practice carried out into the life of the early church when guys like Irenaeus and Augustine would refer to a tithing practice or a tithing rhythm in early Christianity. But, but again, I want us to ask the question, where does that leave us today? And to answer that question, I simply want to say, as a pastor of the Hur what's the name of our church? As a pastor of the Hallows Church, that tithing is a helpful guideline, but it's not necessarily a mandatory requirement. We don't talk a lot about giving of your tithe, not because it's unimportant, just because it's not the language that we're trying to impose today. Meaning, tithing is helpful. It's a helpful guideline, but here's the challenge. We talk a lot about grace here. And we talk a lot about not being under the law, right? Anytime law comes up, we, we, we kind of gun shy of ever being accused of being legalistic and those types of things. So, so we talk a lot about grace. That's the air we breathe in the gospel, in Christ. We breathe grace. But here's the challenge. Here's what I want us to think about. Under the law... The people of Israel were giving probably four times more than what the average disciple is giving in support of the church and gospel-anchored purposes today. On average, most studies say there's about 2.5% is what the average disciple is giving to support the church and to give, bring relief to the poor and to be about what Jesus is about in a city or in a context, 2.5%. That's a far cry from just the 23% that ancient Israel gave in her tithing, giving that she gave under the law. 
So let me ask you, shouldn't the gospel compel more generosity from us than from those who are constrained to give by the law, not less? I don't know what percentage is the right percentage. But shouldn't the gospel compel more generosity from us than the law compelled Israel to give under the old covenant? Now that's a question your heart just has to wrestle with. You have to deal with this and how your heart's relating to money. Shouldn't the gospel compel more generosity from us, not less, than those who were constrained by the law and the old covenant? And then here's another challenge about that. Understand that the tithe in Israel represented the floor, not the ceiling to their giving. The tithe was the baseline. It it was here, but we tend to think, uh, if you come from a tradition that practices the tithe, you think 10% is the ceiling, and you're kind of work up from that. And it's kind of backwards. It's kind of flipped. It's not really what Israel practiced. So if we're going to base it on the Old Testament, we're not basing it responsibly. And if we're going to think about grace and how grace compels generosity, we're certainly not thinking well about it. Shouldn't the gospel compel more generosity from us than the law compelled from Israel in the old, under the Old Covenant? So it's a question I want to ask you. It's a question I want your heart to wrestle with as you consider your heart's relationship with money. You see, a generous church is one that will treasure the gospel. A generous church is one that is transformed by the gospel, whose generosity spills out of what God's grace is doing in us and what God's grace desires to do for others. And when we get there, all of a sudden, when that work begins to have an effect on us, we can be assured that we can become a generous people with nothing to lose. We have all the reason to be generous. We have all the reason to give of our resources for God's purposes in this world, especially when you look at verse 19. Right after he talks about how their worship is giving, listen to this promise in verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. We are assured that as a generous church, we have nothing to worry about because of the gospel. You can be generous and not go without. God promises to supply all for all of your needs, not desires, not luxuries, but all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Verse 19 is another one of those verses that we kind of pluck out of its context and apply unconditionally to all kinds of things. But again, we have to read that verse in its context. The promise found in verse 19 is a conditional promise. It is a promise made to a generous church. And God is saying, in the process of being generous, you will not go without. Therefore, we have nothing to worry about in showing generosity and in giving to the support of the church and the relief of the poor. We have no worries in this. God will supply every need of ours according to his riches. The church of Philippi knew this well. So hold your spot in Philippians chapter 4 and turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, you have a description of what life was like for the churches in Macedonia, including the church at Philippi, and how they were able to give without worry and able to give without anxiety. They were able to give without fear because they knew this promise from God. Check it out. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul's writing to a church in Corinth and he's saying, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. That means the church at Philippi. 
For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Meaning the church at Philippi was in a tough spot. They had every reason to cling to their resources. They were suffering. They were afflicted. They may not have had a lot. But God's grace toward them overflowed in a wealth of generosity. And then he goes on, verse 3, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will. Again, not out of obligation, but out of opportunity. Giving out of their own free will. Begging us. I love this. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. They begged to be about what Jesus was about in the world. They ran to this moment and saying, I hear Paul's, I hear there are some churches suffering in the world. And we have reason. We don't have a lot, but we have some. We want to give towards that. Do not turn our gifts away. That's what he's saying. They begged to, be, to participate. They begged to be about what Jesus was about in the world. That's a generous heart. So they gave not simply out of their wealth and excess. They gave out of their affliction and poverty. So you may be a disciple in this room who thinks, you know, I don't have a lot. Can I really make a difference? You know, I don't have a lot. Can I really be about what Jesus is about? And the Philippian example assures you that, yes, you can. You can be about what Jesus is about, whether you have a lot or whether you have a little. Anytime we give towards the advancement of the gospel, we are participating in what Jesus is doing in the world. And that's something to get excited about. That's something that should liberate our hearts from the clutches of our wealth and our money so that we can invest in eternal things. There's a reason why Jesus would tell his disciples, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Lay up for yourself, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Be about what God's about. Be about the kingdom of God in this world. That's the investment that will last forever. That's a no-risk guaranteed reward investment. And so Paul would say the Philippians gave not only out of their excess and wealth, they gave out of their affliction and poverty. And he's saying any person can exercise generosity because it's not about the amount. It's about the transforming work of the gospel in a person's heart. And here you get to the secret as Paul continues to run in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and he gets to that moment in verse 9 where he reminds his readers of where this generosity comes from, why people would become generous, why people would give to these types of purposes. Verse 9, For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Rich in generosity, rich in grace, rich in goodness, rich in kindness, rich in sacrifice, so that you, in, by his poverty, might become rich in him. This is exactly what Paul is saying in verse 19. My God will supply every need of yours. You will not go and want according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And then he ends in verse 20 with this note of doxology. He says, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, generosity ultimately drives people to glorify God. We want to be a generous church because we want to glorify our Father in heaven. 
We want the life of Jesus to be manifest through the body, through his body on earth. We want to showcase his grace, his goodness, his generosity by how we show grace, show goodness, show generosity to the watching world. A generous church is one that treasures the gospel. And when we treasure the gospel, the gospel pushes out all those inferior treasures and puts them in their appropriate place. We want to be a generous church because a generous church is transformed by the gospel. And we want to be a generous church because a generous church has nothing to worry about because of the gospel. We have nothing to lose. We can give of our time, our talents, and yes, our money towards the advancement of the gospel in this city and around the world. And so I don't know if giving has been a regular practice in your discipleship, but let me encourage you to consider why not. And let me encourage you to consider making it a priority in your worship so that you would join us. A generous church is only as generous as its people, right? And so if we're going to be a generous church, we must be generous people. And so let me encourage you as an individual disciple to consider how your heart is relating to your money, whether you think you have a lot or whether you think you have a little. How is your heart relating to your money? But don't just focus on your heart's relationship with your money. Focus ultimately on your heart's relationship with your Savior. And when you turn your affections towards Jesus, he will put money in its proper place so that no longer will you be handled by money, but you will begin to handle money in ways that are helpful, in ways that are holy, in ways that are generous. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you give grace for our church to continue being a generous church? God, I know there is, that your gospel has worked generosity in the lives of so many disciples in our church, and I thank you for that. And I pray that you would continue to make us a generous people and that we would be a generous church, that we would leverage our resources towards your purposes in this city and around the world. God, would you give us grace to be about what you were about and would our, would our worship through giving affirm that passion and would our worship through giving affirm that priority all in Jesus' name, amen.